In popular history, the early Normans don't get much of a look in. William the Conqueror is very well known, but from there we tend to jump straight into Henry II and the emergence of the House of Plantagenet. In those 67 years, between the death of the Conqueror and the succession of the first Plantagenet king, there was a great shake-up in England, a changing culture which created the England we now recognise. Essentially, we start to see people no longer as Saxon or Norman, but as English. In the last episode, we saw how fragile the Norman conquest actually was. We saw how Motton Bailey castles were built en masse as cheap and effective ways of dominating the local area. And we saw the beginning of Windsor Castle as a wooden keep designed to protect the city of London. This is the story of how that victory turned cold, how the new oppressors began to turn on themselves, and how the result would be assimilation rather than domination, of how England was saved once the two cultures began to work together, how the binding of two races allowed for a new chapter in England's story, as the medieval world came to a close and the Middle Ages began. The first thing to remember is that England under William the Conqueror was an oppressed country. The castles had been built deliberately to suppress the locals, not to protect them. A fine example of this would be to look at Windsor. Now there had been a Saxon settlement in Windsor since the 8th century. However, the Norman wooden castle was built three miles away, on a nearby hill. It was a keep designed to protect the Norman landlord, not the Saxon villagers. And there was a very real reason why the Normans needed to be very harsh in their oppression too. William had brought 7,000 Normans with him in 1066, but there was 1.5 million Saxon inhabitants of England. So the Normans represented a tiny minority of the country, less than 1%, and they needed new and inventive ways of keeping the masses down. And we also see the Norman attitude to England upon the Conqueror's death in 1087. Now, there were no succession rules at the time, but there was precedent that the ruler's lands would usually be split. The eldest son would get the lion's share, and the younger sons would get progressively less. Now, William had three sons at his death. Robert, the oldest, gained the Duchy of Normandy. William Rufus gained the Kingdom of England. And Henry, as the youngest, got nothing. And there's a crucial point here. The eldest son, who would expect the best prize, gained Normandy. The Duchy of Normandy was more important than the Kingdom of England. England was a cash cow. It was used as a way for the Norman barons to gain more money. But the division of Normandy and England caused the Norman barons a very big problem. Robert, Duke of Normandy, and William II of England absolutely hated each other. There's a story from a contemporary which said that as young princes, William had emptied a chamber pot over the head of Robert, causing a furious fist fight. They were brothers, 
but they were bitter enemies. When William the Conqueror had gained England, he had been careful to gift lands to his barons on both sides of the channel, a clever way to ensure obedience, since it was difficult for them to keep all of their lands without the king's support. But this meant that if you were a Norman baron in 1087, you would own lands in two separate countries, each ruled by a leader who hated the other. What would happen in the event of a war between Robert and William? As a baron, you would have to pick sides, and how could you do that without losing your lands in the other country? Between themselves, the Normans decided that a union between England and Normandy again would be the best course of action. But the question is, which brother should be regarded as most important? In 1088, just a year after the William the Conqueror's death, the Norman barons decided that Robert Duke of Normandy, not William King of England, should be superior. And this again tells us everything we want to know about how the Normans viewed England. It may have a crown, but it was ultimately, to the Normans, a savage land with an ugly Saxon population, a kingdom which required huge effort to suppress. Remember too that England was full of wooden keeps and Saxon distrust, whereas Normandy was more sophisticated, wealthy, and harmonious. At first, it looked like the rebellion was going to defeat William Rufus. William was, by all accounts, an arrogant man. He was surrounded by allegations of homosexuality, and as the English king, he had to be cautious. He could not rely upon the support of his Saxon subjects. The rebellion of 1088 was also led by William the Conqueror's brother, this was a family feud, and Robert of Normandy was, after all, the older brother. For whatever reason, however, Robert of Normandy simply didn't join the rebellion himself, he stayed in Normandy, and this caused the whole rebellion to just falter. William and Rufus defeated the rebels in England, and then he turned his mind to invading Normandy. If the two realms were to be united, they would be united under him except that his invasion of Normandy in 1091 was probably as about as effective as the rebellion he had faced in 1088. Eventually, the two brothers made an uneasy truce, leaving Normandy and England as separate realms. William Rufus could now turn his attention to ruling England, this was not a man endeared to England and its culture. He was a Norman, and it was the Norman ways which he now sought to impose. Swathes of lands were passed to the crown to be turned over to hunting grounds. He sought to impose his authority over the church, asserting his rights to invest bishops and oversee the works of the church in England. And he was ruthless to those who opposed him. When William of Eu was accused of treachery, the king had him blinded and castrated in revenge. Another lord was arrested and dispossessed for simply failing to attend a council meeting. If William the Conqueror had oppressed his Saxon subjects, William Rufus seemed intent on oppressing his Norman subjects too. It was only a matter of time before he was stopped. William Rufus was making himself increasingly unpopular in England. The problem was 
The Norman system of oppression worked. The king was almost untouchable. The feudal system was designed for minority rule, and William Rufus exploited it perfectly. In 1096, Robert, Duke of Normandy, decided to take part in the upcoming First Crusade. To raise the money he would need, he borrowed a 100,000 marks from his brother, the English king, and he pledged his duchy as collateral, also making the English king the regent of Normandy. William Rufus leapt at the chance. He knew that his brother may well not return from his crusade. To raise the money he needed, he brought in steep new taxes, which caused even deeper resentment against him. But what did William Rufus care? Now that he had possession of Normandy, he left cold and drafty England for his native Normandy, where he remained for the next four years. The same theme keeps popping up here. England was used for money to the Norman family. It was not a place of any real significance to them. Eventually, however, in 1100, William Rufus did go back to his kingdom. He decided to go hunting in the New Forest in Hampshire with his brother Henry and a group of Norman lords. Within hours, he was dead. An arrow had pierced his lung. The biggest question facing everyone was, had the king been murdered? There were many people who wanted him dead. William Rufus had annoyed just about everyone in England, from the oppressed Saxon majority, to the Norman barons, to his own family and the church. The man who shot the fatal arrow was a nobleman called Walter Tyrrell. Hunting was a dangerous sport, many people died participating in it. But even the contemporaries were shocked. Walter Tyrrell was a renowned marksman, well known for his skill with a bow. Tyrrell fled after the accident. William's brother Henry was taking part in the hunting trip, and it was he who was then declared to be the next English king. He also fled the scene, heading straight to Winchester to take control of the royal treasury. The king's body was left lying on the forest floor. To this day, we simply can't be sure what happened to William Rufus. Hunting was dangerous. It may well have been an accident. And while Henry's actions are suspicious, fleeing straight to the royal treasury, these could also be the actions of someone who's shocked and in a panic. Succession in the 11th century was rarely smooth, and even if the death of William Rufus was an accident, Henry would need to take steps to ensure his own succession. But even at the time, the death was reported as strange, and that's by people who knew hunting and its dangers. William had made many enemies, and this was a violent age. It's entirely plausible that someone sought to kill the English king. Henry I was the first Norman king who may have actually been born in England, possibly in Yorkshire. He's also what we call born in the purple. In other words, he was born to a ruling king, which was a popular way in which younger sons could claim inheritance over their elder siblings. Henry was quite a lot younger than his brothers, so it's unlikely he would have been particularly close to them. It's also likely he would have been raised predominantly in England as opposed to Normandy although he still would have spoken and written French rather than English. But the reign of William Rufus was now over, and the rule of Henry I had come. Almost immediately, Henry sought to differentiate himself from his brothers. 
He realised that the turbulence both the Conqueror and William Rufus had faced had been the result of their oppression. They hated their own people, so they could not rely upon them to support them. Henry decided that the time had come to integrate with his Saxon subjects. He was crowned king in August 1100, and he immediately issued a proclamation. He would not subjugate the church, he would not press undue taxation on his subjects. He even declared that he would return to the customs of the Saxon king Edward the Confessor, a remarkable statement for a Norman king to make. In November 1100, he married Matilda of Scotland, the daughter of the King of Scots, but on her mother's side, Matilda was of the royal house of Wessex, a Saxon princess. King Henry I really did signify a U-turn. He was always a Norman himself, a French speaker who had all the pride and the haughtiness of the Normans. But he acknowledged that the Normans could not maintain their oppression of the Saxons forever, not without huge military strife and discord. By marrying a Saxon princess, by drawing parallels between his rule and that of the famous Edward the Confessor, he was signifying that he wanted to be a king of both Norman and Saxon subjects. He wanted his subjects to feel a sense of loyalty and pride in him, not just fear. In 1103, Henry's son William was born, and he was given the title of Atheling, which was the traditional Anglo-Saxon term for the heir to the throne, a clear sign that his family was to be both Norman and Saxon. Now, of course, this was not just benevolence. There was real politics going on beneath the surface. The Normans lacked legitimacy, and that was always going to cause a threat of rebellion. Maintaining armies and castles across the kingdom was very expensive as well. But most importantly, Henry was aware that he was not really as strong as claimant as his elder brother, Robert, Duke of Normandy, who was still away on crusade. By marrying a Saxon princess, Henry seemed to become a much more natural fit for the English throne than that of his brother. But many of his Norman barons did not agree. In 1101, Robert of Normandy had returned from crusade, and it looked like war was about to break out between England and Normandy. Henry realised how vulnerable he was. Many of his own barons had either opposed him, or else failed to take a side at all. But a peace had been brokered, and calm had been restored. Henry knew it was a problem that was not going to go away, however. From 1101, he began to send huge sums of money and the promise of English titles into Normandy to win over the barons to his cause. For two years, there was a long battle of wills between Henry and Robert, a battle of bribery too, I'll add, until eventually, by 1106, Henry felt ready to pounce. Henry, by 1106, had won over large numbers of Norman lords to his cause. In July, he crossed the Channel, hoping to finally crush his brother once and for all. In September, the two brothers finally met with their armies. The battle was short, it lasted only an hour, before finally, after vicious fighting, Robert, Duke of Normandy, was taken prisoner. He ordered his remaining garrisons to surrender to Henry and swore an oath to his younger brother. 
there was a difference between reality and officiality. Officially, Henry acknowledged that he had no real claim to the Duchy of Normandy. He retained his English kingdom, and Robert remained the Duke of Normandy. But in reality, of course, the duchy was now completely controlled by King Henry of England. Robert was taken a prisoner, and he'd remain a prisoner for the rest of his life, and the Norman lords all swore an oath of allegiance to Henry. Henry could now turn his attention to governance. He was a genuine believer in peace where it could be achieved, and he had decided early on to break down the oppression against his Saxon subjects. It should be added, Henry was not always a kind man. Those who broke the law, or breached the peace, were subject to brutal punishment, mutilation, castration, blinding, limb-chopping. These ghastly practices, they were all commonplace during Henry's reign. But the result of such brutality was the preservation of peace, as many contemporaries were quick to point out, and Henry did not reserve justice as his forebears had done, just for the Normans. Henry's real success was in the reform of law. He reintroduced loads of Saxon customs, which most people would have been familiar with, and which were less prejudiced against the common people than the Norman feudal law. He set up judicial circuits, whereby royal judges travelled throughout the kingdom, offering people a chance to petition the king through his judge on any legal matter they were facing. In previous years, if people wanted to challenge a legal decision, they had to pay a fortune travelling to the king's court, or else they simply had to accept whatever decision was made. He reformed the coinage, and he introduced better ways of recording royal finances. His court was reformed, becoming grander, more sophisticated, more organised, and more efficient than the courts of his predecessors. And most importantly of all, he adapted the role of his castles. Castles would always have a military purpose right up until the 17th century, and under Henry I that didn't change. Castles were predominantly military buildings, and only secondary a home. But under King Henry I, the purpose of the castle really did start to shift from being oppressive to the local community to defending it. Though most castles were still made of wood and leather at this point, they're still not huge stone citadels, the castles which were built under King Henry I tended to be designed to be along the borders of the country rather than within the towns. The bailey of a castle, the walled enclosure, tended to be larger because it was now encouraged to welcome the townspeople into the castle enclosure, particularly during times of war, rather than leaving them to their own devices in the town. They became good centres of the locality, where you could host your town market or local festival under the protection of the castle garrison. They began to take on a local community role, rather than acting just as the iron rod of the area. And we see all of Henry's develops coming together at Windsor Castle, which for the first time began to become a proper royal residence. William the Conqueror and William Rufus, they had owned Windsor Castle, but neither had ever really lived there. But this changed under King Henry I, who had the purpose-built royal apartments constructed, though they'll still would at this point. And why Windsor? 
while Henry was going to great lengths to strengthen his Saxon links, and Windsor had been home to an old Saxon royal palace, so making a home in Windsor would further highlight his Saxon heritage. He staged his great council meetings in the castle, and in fact much of the layout of the castle to this day stems from the layout of Henry's castle in 1100. And with all this new royal activity going on, a town began to form around the castle itself. Now it's separate by three miles from the town which was technically called Windsor, so it began to be referred to as New Windsor, and the old Saxon town became called Old Windsor, and of course they both remain today. By 1120, Henry could look back on a career with pride. He had secured his succession of Normandy and England, stabilised peace within his kingdom, and gone to great lengths to strengthen the relations between Normans and Saxons. He even managed to form a dynasty through his son, which was both Norman through his line and Saxon through Matilda's. But then fate intervened. In 1120, the young William Atheling, the only son of King Henry I, was boarding a ship in Normandy. He was surrounded by the crop of great Norman lords, all young, ambitious, fun-loving. A party started on the ship, and the passengers got drunker and drunker. Even the crew took part in the merrymaking. The white ship, as it was called, began to set sail, steered by an incapacitated crew and raucous passengers. It had not even left the harbour when it struck rock. Within an hour, the ship had sunk, and there was only one survivor. William Atheling, the heir to the throne, the symbol of unity between Norman and Saxon, was dead. The sinking of the white ship was an utter blow to the English king. Norman's succession was rarely smooth at the best of times, and with no other son to inherit the crown, he was bereft. He did remarry in Windsor Castle that same year, hoping he could produce another son. But by this point, he was already over 50. Even if he did manage to sire a son, he was very unlikely to live to see him come of age. At Christmas, 1126, Henry I had his nobles swear an oath to uphold his daughter Matilda's claim to the throne of England. This might seem logical to us today, but this was an age in which kings were warlords and a woman was not seen as fit to rule. The word queen is actually Anglo-Saxon for king's wife and no connotations of power. Similarly, there had never been a female ruler of Normandy or England, and opposition to Matilda remained open and long-standing. For the rest of his life, Henry was devoted to shoring up support for Matilda's rule, though he refused to give her any real military or strategic power. He disliked and feared her husband, the Count of Anjou. In 1135, the king died, reportedly from eating too many lampreys. The nobles almost instantly refuted the claim of Matilda and installed her cousin Stephen on the throne. A furious Matilda gathered what supporters she had and made ready to claim her birthright. England 
collapsed into anarchy.